You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So it's been a few weeks since I've been able to get an episode out to you, um, and that's not for wanting or not wanting to. That's actually due to the fact that I've been traveling now for, I'm guessing, about 13 or 14 weeks living out of a suitcase, uh, traveling the country. And it's difficult to line up guests as and when I'm having to go to airports and working at all odd hours. In any case, uh, last week... I had an email come in that basically said that the Senate is going to be voting on the PRO Act after the, um, after the break that the Senate or the Congress is on. And so a little while later, there is a post done by Politico that said unions post-reconciliation PRO Act push. And essentially what the unions are doing is they're trying to get the U.S. Senate to vote on the PRO Act. Now, as you may recall, the PRO Act has already passed the House of Representatives, and it's actually done that twice. But in this Congress, it's already passed the House, and they are now wanting to get it passed in the Senate. However, there are a few Democrat holdouts that does not quite get them over the finish line. And those holdouts are uh, Kristen Cinema from Arizona, Mark Kelly from Arizona, as well as potentially Virginia's Mark Warner. And for those of you that are not familiar with the PRO Act, it is a rewrite of American labor law, um, very pro-union. It it codifies something called the ABC test, which uh, essentially does away with the gig economy as you know it. And as well as eradicates or eliminates right-to-work states, it forces companies into binding arbitration once they're unionized. Um, it, it does a whole number of things. And you can, I'll put up a couple links that kind of explain it to you. Um, but in any case, I wanted to reach out to uh, Ben Brubeck, who's the uh, Vice President of Regulatory Affairs for the Associated Builders and Contractors, and he is a source of knowledge of what's happening current day in Washington, D.C. And Ben's been on the, the show a couple times, um, actually a few times now, and I've found him to be like on top of everything. So in any case, here's Ben Brubeck. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Ben Brubeck, thanks for coming back to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? Great. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me back on the program. A lot going on since the last time we touched base. Yeah, so you sent an email out last week, and then I saw an article in Politico confirming your email that the that the unions are pushing the Democrats to uh, bring up the PRO Act in the Senate after the break is over. And I'm not sure when that break is over, but so let's talk about that. What's going yeah. on? Yeah, it's, uh, it could be some last-minute kind of saber-rattling to try to get a vote on the PRO Act in the Senate. Uh, your listeners probably know that the PRO Act passed the house earlier um this congress and uh you know there's a big push to try to have a vote in the senate um i don't think they have the votes to get it over the finish line um but i think they want to see where lawmakers stand and they want to ask uh, chuck schumer for a vote on this and it's unclear if uh chuck's gonna uh, allow that to happen or not 
Um, but the sort of big holdup is a couple of Democrats seem like they're unwilling to to support it, uh, mainly Cinema and uh, Kelly uh, from Arizona. It sounds like they're they're opposed to it, um, and then. Uh, Warner from Virginia is the other one who seems to be on the fence, although the unions are claiming that they have his vote. So unclear if they have the uh, 50. And then, of course, they would likely need, um, you know, a 60 vote majority to uh, or 60 vote supermajority in order to pass this, get it over the finish line. But I think it's uh, something that Democrats want to see if uh, yeah, where, where their lawmaker friends are on this issue and kind of push uh, the envelope on the PRO Act. Well, so here's a question. You've got the midterm elections a couple months away. Um, and if they if they bring it up for a vote, and it, that's what it looks like, they're trying to get them on the record, according to Politico, um, what's going to happen with the midterms? It's not like they're going to switch horses all of a sudden, right? Right, right. I mean, I think they're, what you're seeing is this last-minute push to kind of see where – uh, where their friends are and put additional pressure on them publicly because I think they know that the, the sort of legislative clock is running out. I think they presume that the Republicans are going to take over the House, which all signs seem to point to that right now. In the Senate's a different question, unclear what's going to happen in the Senate. I think some of the Republican candidates for some of the seats on the Republican ledger have have not done as well and have not has much momentum given all the headwinds that are there as far as the economy and all these other issues that are hurting the overall Democrat ticket. Um, but it's you know still a lot of daylight left. But I think a lot of the um, progressives and the far left are thinking, yeah, this is our last chance to pass anything or get anyone on the record um, meaningfully on some of these key issues. So I think there's a, a, great, a greater push for that. They're beating up some of these lawmakers back on during August recess back home at various appearances, um, and you know using different tactics on that too. But um, you know, it's not it's not just about the pro act itself. We're seeing the pro act kind of being going to be pushed, I think, next year through the administrative state um, and NLRB. And that's a big concern for the employment community, for sure. Yeah, so let's divert a little bit. What are you seeing out of the NLRB? Well, it's pretty radical. I mean, the usual the usual uh, efforts by the NLRB, you know, for your, your, your listeners, they, they know it kind of goes back and forth depending on who's in charge. Democrats are now in charge, or Democrat-appointed NLRB members are in charge, and their GC is, you know, pushing some radical, um, you know, ideas out there and really pushing the envelope from what we can see, and and uh, I think has, um, you know, looked at different ways to try to enact aspects of the PRO Act that might be um, done through the NLRB process as opposed to legislatively, which I think is the proper um, pathway for it. So, you know, the NLRB continues to be a layer of concern for the employment community. You know, the sort of policy whiplash going back and forth, the lack of being able to um, settle a lot of these cases um, and have decisions on a lot of these cases that have been, you know, pending for, for years is an area of concern for uh, for a lot of the you know contractors we work with and overall uh, business community too. You know, one of the things I was having this conversation over the weekend, um, and for a lot of businesses out there, they don't really follow the day to day minutia that's happening in Washington. And I was I was trying to explain to somebody the um, you've got the CMEX case, which is the one that Jennifer Abruzzo, who's the general counsel of the NLRB, is using to. Uh, try to push through a ban on captive audience meetings, the Joyce Silk Doctrine, which is backdoor card check. And what I've been noticing through all the media out there with Starbucks, Amazon, and all these other companies, high-profile companies that are getting hit, is that the unions have been filing unfair labor practice charges uh, 
for the mere holding of mandatory meetings or captive audience meetings, the so-called captive audience meetings. And I think what's happening is they're, they're going to wait for CMEX to get decided, but the, and assuming this is, you know, the assumption that, that may be out there if the NLRB rules along with the Bruzos, um, idea that that captive audience meetings are inherently coercive that with all these other cases in the pipeline and if they use the joy silk doctrine they'll issue bargaining orders for all the cases that are in the pipeline i've been seeing this you know just following what's happening at the nlrb and in the various cases and i'm wondering um when that cmex decision should be coming down do you have any insights on that? I, I don't. That's a big question. You know, we, we've talked to uh, the NLRB just broadly about the timing on a lot of these decisions. And, and of course, everyone in town who follows the labor relations are concerned about the CMEX case and also the Joy Silk, you know, doctrine and the concepts behind that. And uh, it seems unclear when that might might come out, but um, certainly would be a game changer and, you know, something that probably opens up a pathway for, like you said, more of these cases to, to um, you know, move forward in that direction and, and probably... Uh, result in outcomes that the employment community would not like. So um, I think that's a you know, big area of concern, something to watch uh, the end of this year for sure. Well, I think what it's going to do is it's going to drive a lot of the employers to get snagged with this into the courts. Like they'll appeal, you know, the whatever decision the NLRB rules, they're going to get, you know, an unfair labor practice decided upon by the NLRB, and then they're just going to appeal it to the courts. Yeah, exactly. They'll get tied up in the courts, and you know that that that's not a uh, a costless endeavor for a lot of these companies. They have to bring on you know uh, expensive uh, attorneys to help them settle these cases, and they may be frivolous. They may have merit. Who knows? But it takes some time to move these uh, forward through the process, and hopefully um, get adjudicated in a reasonable amount of time. Right. Um, so the economy seems to be softening a little bit. Uh, are you seeing that softening in the construction industry? Yeah, a little bit. And the construction industry is, is a bit of a unique entity in that we're on the tail end of a lot of this economic activity. So our contractors have a lot of work under contract already. And we send out a, um, a survey of our membership. It's called the Construction Backlog Indicator. And essentially, it determines sort of the amount of work that contractors have under contract and you know how long they have until they sort of need to find more work. Um, they're always trying to find more work. But, you know, Technically, it measures when the work that they have under contracts over. And so what we're finding is that the contractors are starting to have a little less work under contract, but they're still in pretty good shape. Um, the uh, you know biggest issues for the construction industry right now are the skilled labor shortage, which is uh, 650,000 people in 2022 right now. And then, of course, the material cost escalation, uh, which is uh, about 43 percent uh, higher than when the pandemic started and about 17 percent year over year, uh, an increase uh, for both numbers. So that's pretty significant. And when you're a contractor and you have um, you know, escalating material prices that are increasing out of control um, for contracts that are under contract or contracts you're about to bid, and you're not sure about your skilled labor shortage, um, that really makes it difficult to um, deliver projects um, at the price that has been quoted. So uh, that's creating some disruptive um, issues within the industry. And uh, also, we're seeing a lot of the public side owners and private owners sort of pause and uh, maybe delay or kind of reconfigure some of the contracts and projects they have or are about to put out to bid because 
they know that their costs have gone up and maybe they can't build that school at the design that was made last year or two years ago. Uh, they need to go back and redesign. So we're seeing some disruption for sure uh, in the construction industry as a result of everything that's gone on with COVID and the economy and the war and everything else that's happening. Yeah, I was wondering, Zeb, you know, you see the headlines, the housing market starting to slow or cool off a little bit. And you guys have a lot of uh, commercial contractors as well. I was wondering if it's starting to slow there as well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, ABC, we've got 21,000 general contractors, subcontractors and construction industry companies um, in the U.S. And, um, you know, a lot of our membership are primarily commercial industrial contractors. So not a lot of single family home builders. We do have some. But we do have a lot of multifamily home uh, builders as well, you know, build big apartment buildings and, and mixed use development, stuff like that. Um, but the, yeah, there, there is some impact, obviously, in the housing side of what's going on right now with, with the mortgage rates going up. And uh, we're certainly seeing um, a lot of concern on the commercial side uh, on private work. But on the public side, it's a different story to some degree because we have so much money coming into the system. Um, you know, there's $550 billion worth of new construction um, above usual government construction baseline spending that's coming in as a result of the infrastructure bill, uh, the IAJA that was passed um, last year and signed into law this year. They're, you know, the money's coming in, in, into this year. Um, and so, you know, that money's in there. There's also money that's coming out from the ARPA bill. Um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the IAJA money hasn't even really hit the street yet as far as translating into contracts that are being even competitively bid yet, yet alone awarded. So that the, that work is not going to come out until probably, um, you know, they say hit the street probably until next year, uh, late next year for some some of these programs that are new. So, um, you know, that that money and those those contracts are going to be out there um, for the next few years at, at significant rates. Now, are these the ones that are they impacted by the um, executive order that Biden did earlier? I believe it was earlier this year for PLAs, or is that different? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically back in February, President Biden issued an executive order that requires something called project labor agreements or PLAs on federal construction contracts of $35 million or more. And right. so uh, some of the money that IAJA has is for federal contracts, but a lot of it's for state and local contracts, um, you know, construction projects are procured by state and local governments uh, through competitive grant programs. And the Biden administration is kind of doing two things, sort of a one-two punch on this PLA front. Um, first, they've got this uh, PLA executive order requiring PLAs on contracts over 35 million just for federal contracts. So those are like, uh, military housing on military bases. These are like VA hospitals, GSA, office buildings for federal agencies. Th those impact those. And in fact, uh, just last week, the uh, FAR Council, which does all the procurement for federal contracting, um, issued a proposed rule implementing the executive order. So the comment period for that is uh, is open until October 18th. So folks in your audience may want to, you know, send, send a letter or note into the FAR Council about some of the problems with this uh, proposed rule. Um, and uh, the other issue is on federally assisted contracts. And this is independent of the executive order. Uh, what these federal agencies are doing is they're pushing state and local governments to uh, either require or give preference to um, applications uh, that require project labor agreements. And they're doing this through these federal agency grant programs. And we've identified about $95 billion worth of grant programs that have these pro PLA language in it to some degree. So a lot of the states and localities are saying, hey, look, you know, this is bad policy. 
if I don't require PLAs, I may not get the money um, that I am trying to you know, apply for to build schools, roads, and bridges. Um, and that money is going to go to a state that does require a PLA. But in my state, let's say I only have 5% of the construction workforce is unionized. Um, if I suddenly require a PLA, that means out-of-state contractors and workers are going to come in and take jobs from my state's um, construction industry. So they're in a lose-lose position. So a lot of the states and localities are pretty upset by what the Biden administration is doing. There's a lot of confusion about it, and they're pushing back. Um, so altogether, our, our industry is sort of suffering this one-two punch from the Biden administration on federal contracts and federally assisted contracts. They are uh, being steered to unionize contractors and union labor through project labor agreements. And in the construction industry, just 87% uh, of the industry is non-union, 13% is unionized. So, you know, when you're eliminating almost nine out of 10 workers and their employers from competing for public works construction contracts, that's going to increase the cost of construction um, just through basic economics. And, and we know that there's other reasons why PLAs increase the cost of construction on top of that. And typically it's between 12% and 20% compared to non-PLA projects. So, you know, that means that Americans are getting fewer roads, schools, and bridges as a result of bad policy that's trying to reward special interests. Right. And so um, we're, we started chatting a little bit before I hit the record button on the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act which I'm seeing a lot of headlines that it's not really going to reduce. And I think Manchin said it's not going to really reduce inflation, but is there um, labor related language in that? Yeah, there are a couple things of interest to the construction industry that are concerning. Um, well, I guess first you know, there's, of course, there's tax provisions that seem to hurt small businesses. Um, and they kind of gave a, a um, handoff to Wall Street and kind of had sort of Main Street <laughs> pay for some of those costs, um, you know, 15 percent number uh, for, for a lot of these businesses. Uh, book value seems like the, the, the pay the pay for on a lot of these issues. Um, and it's got a lot of different industries upset. But besides that, on the labor front side, um, there's language in the bill that requires um, these green energy or clean energy construction projects they get um, tax breaks uh, from the IRS. So they actually get tax breaks for a lot of these clean energy right now. They've changed the system. And so what they wanna do is uh, offer anyone who um, gets these tax breaks a, a full amount of tax breaks. Um, that's about five times as, as uh, valuable as the baseline tax break. If they use um, what they call uh, prevailing wages, they pay workers prevailing wages according to the Davis-Bacon Act. And if they use uh, con if they use registered apprentices uh, through government registered apprenticeship programs, they have to satisfy both of these Davis Bacon and registered apprenticeship program requirements in order to access the full tax breaks. And so, um, for example, the the baseline tax credit uh, would be about six percent, but uh, if they if they do both these things, they would get a thirty percent tax credit um, for some of these programs. So that's a that's a that's a new policy change. Um, for uh, the clean energy sort of tax environment as a whole, but it's really unprecedented to have both Davis-Bacon and government registered apprenticeship program standards attached to um, private projects that are getting uh, federal tax breaks, federal tax dollars. So let's let, let's break down Davis-Bacon or prevailing wage a little bit because that's a confusing topic for a lot of people out there. Um, but the Davis-Bacon Act, I think, was 1932-ish. That's right. And it's basically public projects 
Um, the workers on public projects are to be paid a prevailing wage of the area, which oftentimes happens to be, quote, union wages, right? So it, it drives up the cost. And so if I'm, if I'm bidding on a project, um, the, the apprenticeship part of that, that probably doesn't affect your members a lot because you've got apprentices through ABC, Right. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the apprenticeship issue is one issue, but Davis Bacon's the other one that that a lot of our public contractors get get wrapped up in. And and like you said, yeah, so the Davis Bacon Act, um, you know, was passed in the '30s, and it, it applies to all federal contracts over two thousand dollars, and a lot of these federally assisted um, contracts, which uh, you know, just about everything's got um, some level of, of federal funding. Um, and, and certainly a lot of these state and local projects that are getting some of this IHA money, especially, I think the Department of Labor estimates about $217 billion worth of public works construction project is subject to the Davis-Bacon Act per year. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a bit of money. Um, and so you, you have the Davis-Bacon Act requires contractors to pay this government-determined wage rate based on area standards. And the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division does a, a survey process of contractors to figure out what are the area wage rates and benefit rates. And instead of using methodology that's scientific and, and um, you know, accurate and timely, they do these surveys of, of contractors and these surveys aren't, have a very low response rate. They're not particularly accurate. Um, and basically what happens is a lot of the w- wage rates that are used are not reflective of the market. Uh, some of these wage rates are way less than the market and some of them are, are way more expensive. Um, but the, the system has been sort of rigged to make sure that the wage rates are the union collective bargain agreement rates in a lot of instances. Um, and that, of course, um, is problematic because these aren't market wage rates. But the bigger problem for contractors with Davis-Bacon is the compliance on the regulatory side. They have to submit certified payrolls. They have to make sure that they pay their workers the correct wage rate based on the type of activity that they're doing on the job site. So. Uh, if they're, you know, have a worker who's doing a little bit of drywall, they have to pay them as a, a, you know, at a rate for a drywaller. If they're also doing painting, they have to pay them at the rate of a painter. If they're doing some general laborers work, they got to pay them at that rate. So these w- contractors have to figure out how to pay these workers multiple different wage rates per hour, perhaps, depending on what they're doing on the job site. It becomes very convoluted and frustrating for um, small businesses, especially. And uh, the construction industry has so many small businesses I think uh, 92% of the construction industry has less than 10 employees um, for for firms across the across the board. So that's you know a lot of these small businesses don't have time for or don't have the capacity to really follow a lot of these complicated regulations, and so they don't bid on these public works projects, um, even though they can and they they should. Um, so anyway, the Davis Bacon Act expansion uh, onto these projects is unprecedented. These are private projects, and uh, this will generally discourage. Um, small businesses from competing for these contracts and also increase the cost of construction. And we don't know how much it's going to increase the cost of construction by, but um, you know, the, it depends on the market and the familiarity of the contractor base with Davis Bacon, but generally it is more than the market rate and there's more compliance costs there. Um, so that's, that's one aspect. And maybe, maybe we just remind your audience too, that the department of labor uh, earlier this year issued a proposed rule Um, that would overhaul the regulations implementing the Davis-Bacon Act. And uh, this regulation is um, complete 
you know, total change of the way that the Davis-Bacon Act works and the way that they that they uh, calculate these wage rates, they enforce the Davis-Bacon Act. And it's got a lot of folks in the construction industry upset because it expands it onto uh, modular construction, prefabrication construction, um, you know, flaggers, transportation of materials to job sites. It's a huge expansion of the, uh, the Davis-Bacon Act, and it undoes about 40 years worth of court decisions and regulatory fixes uh, and the Reagan administration's fixes to the Davis-Bacon Act. So really, the, the Biden administration is kind of going back in time on this Davis-Bacon rule. Um, and so we'll see a final rule on that probably later this year or maybe earlier next year, and that's going to have some big um, repercussions throughout the industry. Um, and you know, coupled with this expanding to private projects that are clean energy projects, um, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, contractors who are just going to say, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this work until this is all settled. So let me let me ask you to expand on that a little bit because when you sure. said modular homes, transportation, um, these are for federal and or federally assisted projects, right? That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So modular homes, I'm thinking, would probably be like a base. Well, so uh, so you know, it could be a military base. It could be a lot of like, for example, hotels. Um, you know, do some uh, manu- manufactured, pre-manufactured modular units uh, in a mm-hmm. controlled warehouse, and they basically just you know use a large flatbed truck to ship those types of units to the job and then put them into the correct place. Um, there's tons of cost savings and um, safety uh, benefits from doing prefabricated construction. Uh, and right now, the, those projects are generally exempt from the Davis-Bacon Act uh, if they are not done on the actual job site themselves. And there are a lot of um, companies that do pre- prefabricated you know, units or parts. They don't necessarily know if their job is a Davis-Bacon job or not. Um, so that would be requiring a lot of these prefabricated um, companies and, and warehouses to track that and then pay their workers a wage rate that may be, you know, prevailing within the site of the actual work or the site of the actual uh, factory, for example. So this, it's very confusing for this. Con- could Does this extend down to the subcontractors? Yes. So, Davis, yeah. Yep. Subcontractors. It all applies to them, too. Um, and the manufacturer, let me, I'm just kind of processing this as I'm thinking about it. So if I've got a contractor who's doing modular, whatever for that's end use is going to be some sort of government funded project or assisted project. And I'm making sinks for, is that like as a manufacturer, that's going to go towards that modular unit. Would yeah, that, would that go down that low? There are exceptions for what they call commercial off-the-shelf products. Um, so I don't know if a sink would qualify, but let's just say, for example, uh, prefabrication, you're actually um, putting together like a, a square or a rectangle of the bathroom. Uh, maybe you don't have it all finished out, but you've got it sort of framed out. You've got some of the plumbing and some of the other other things connected there. You kind of ship it like a Lego onto you know onto the project. Um, all of the all of that whole process right there. Um, all that work that was done there uh, needs to be subject to Davis-Bacon uh, wow. regulations. So um, that's certainly going to chill the use of prefabrication on a lot of these uh, government contracts. And, um, you know, the prefab market is, and, and model is a really interesting way to control costs, you know, because you're not working on a project itself that's subject to weather issues, right. um, you know, delivery, sequencing issues, 
Um, you have a real controlled environment. You've got a, you know better use of materials, a lot less material waste there. So uh, a lot of the modular builders and the associations representing them are, are up in arms about this proposed rule. And then you mentioned the transportation. So there, there you're talking about the flatbed truck drivers, right? So right. If, a, if a company contracts to haul some units somewhere, those drivers are going to be snagged in there right yeah that's right yeah so you know if, if the modular construction or material su- supplying of, of of these projects um are would be subject to this under you know convoluted circumstances but they would they would be and you know a lot of these a lot of these the drivers are maybe dropping off multiple loads you know some to um a non davis bacon subject job site and, and maybe they're delivering some of it to a regular davis bacon job site so then the then the trucking companies are now going to have to figure out what rate to pay these work workers, depending on the type of material and uh, type of project. So it becomes a, another uh, burden. Um, the bigger companies can probably figure this out, but the independent truck drivers, the ones who are out there doing this work, I think are going to have a, a more complicated time getting adjusted to this. And of course, all this is uh, is a proposed rule now. We'll see a final rule, and then you know, it'll be interesting to see whether this will be litigated in the courts and whether this um, whether some of these provisions are... are uh, are legal. I mean, the the application of this to offsite construction is not in the actual statute. Uh, this is all regulatory gamesmanship to try to expand its use and reward um, folks who support the Davis Bacon Act. It's it's amazing how much red tape there is, and it's um, I, and this is somewhat related. It brings us back to the Pro Act. I don't know if you followed a few weeks ago the. Uh, owner operators, the independent truck drivers out in the Port of California, were protesting for about a week due to the ABC test, and that having been, uh, I guess the Supreme Court didn't hear the the case on it. But you know, you're you're now dealing with like small mom and pop trucking companies that if they don't get you with the ABC test, they might get you with Davis Bacon. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, you know, this the regulatory state is sort of a death by a thousand cuts. I, you know, I talked to so many contractors around the country and they're like, look, we just want to build these projects. We can deliver the projects and do them great and uh, their quality and on time, on budget, and they're safe. But we're just concerned about all the regulations that you know, we've got to follow in the public contracting space. And um, you know, they change so frequently. They're so unclear. You call the agency, you can't get um, a, a straight answer out of them. And then down the road, you can be liable for for you know, not paying the correct wage or not classifying someone appropriately. They're like, all we want is clarity. That's all we want. We want consistency so we can bid our projects correctly and then make a little bit of money and deliver the, to the customer. Um, and they're like, it's just very hard to do that in this environment, which is why they prefer to do private work where where a lot of these a lot of these regulations are not as onerous. Right. Um so and a lot of times when we think of like green projects or we're thinking like windmills, but there's a lot more in that industry, right? And yeah, yeah. Uh, electric vehicle charging stations are a big one right now. The Biden administration yeah. wants to have 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations in the ground by um, 2030. They only have about 50,000 in the ground right now. Um, so they have a, a they have a big, big um, effort ahead of them if they want to hit those numbers. And, um, uh, you know, if they, if they want to hit those numbers, I think that you could argue the Davis-Bacon requirements and the registered apprenticeship program requirements are going to create um, uh, a shortage of, of qualified contractors and skilled labor that can do this work. Um, so that's a big concern. Uh, it's not just EV stations, though. You've got, you know, solar panels. You've got hydrogen. 
Um, you've got, uh, you know, windmills is, is one offshore winds a big issue right now, but all kinds of new um, clean energy technology that would fall kind of under this uh, new regulatory state if they want the tax um, incentives from the federal government. Yeah, I haven't dug into this at all, but when you just mentioned solar panels, um, are they talking about solar panels on houses or are they talking about more commercial projects? Well, it depends on on, on what sort of tax breaks um, the uh, the solar effort is getting. So a lot of these are probably going to be commercial, um, but there might be instances where the you know they're residential in nature. Um, but we're seeing more and more you know tax um, effort efforts to support large solar scale operations. Um, so okay. probably probably more more impacting that that right there. Yeah. As, as- just thinking about, wow, if I put solar panels on the house, am I going to have to put, you know, get a an apprenticed uh, electrician and yeah. installer, and are they going to be paid Davis-Bacon wages? Is, is that yeah, where they're, we're going? They're, yeah, the, the, the residential side, there is language in IRA, I think, for home energy credits that they have to be paid a Davis-Bacon wage rate. So, um, you know, it's, it's like auditing... Um, some of these uh, clean energy efforts uh, might be might fall under that. Um, you know, the, the Obama administration had sort of a snafu with this, where they expanded Davis Bacon to home weatherization and uh, didn't have the right wage, the right wage rates or the right training for a lot of these workers um, to do this, and it became a big regulatory problem back in two thousand and I guess nine or twelve, more in that area. Um, so we might see something similar like that happen here if there aren't the, the correct wage rates and regulatory system around this. Um, set up, but um, you know, I think when re- if if residential uh, uh, homeowners start seeing uh, the application of Davis Bacon to some of their work, I think that what's going to happen is a lot of them are going to say the tax credits aren't really worth it anymore. Um, there's no benefit to this; it's going to increase my overall costs, um, and so uh, we we don't we don't we won't use the rebates. Well, and the reality is, in a lot of states, um, trying to find an apprentice anything. Yeah, especially the southern states where there's not a lot of union presence. Like I couldn't get a union electrician if I wanted to. Yeah, it's interesting. So this government registered apprenticeship program um, requirement is it's a sticky wicket for ABC because we we do support government registered apprenticeship programs. Um, ABC itself, Mm -hmm. our chapters, we have 68 chapters across the country. We have uh, more than 300 government registered apprenticeship programs. They're registered with the federal government or um, the state equivalent agencies. And uh, we, we believe in registered apprenticeship. We think it's one part of an all of the above workforce development solution. But what the government is saying is that only government registered apprenticeship programs qualify for these, you know, for, for satisfying this, this extra um, tax incentive. And uh, these government registered apprenticeship programs are offered in uh, more than 20 trades and there are four or five year programs and they're great and they're great ways to get into the industry, um, but they're just not used on a large enough scale to, to be the only way to get these tax credits. Um, the, these programs collectively only graduate about 40 to 45,000 apprentices a year. Um, collectively? Collectively. And this includes wow. ABCs. So this, this, these are the unions and ABCs. 40, 45,000 a year. We have a skilled labor shortage of 650,000 this year. So do the math. It would take 14 years at current rates of graduation just to meet our demands for this year. So they're not uh, widely used um, outside of contractors that are in the public um, contracting space. 
I think that's part of the goal of trying to tie these tax incentives to this is to get them to be more wide, widely used. But there's a regulatory component to this. There's red tape. And a lot of these small businesses are not going to engage in, in this type of um, uh, regulatory effort in order to uh, to access this type of work. They're going to go somewhere else. And so these small businesses are, are, are not going to uh, to do a lot of this work. And that means more and more larger companies, larger contractors are going to take this work. And you know, with less competition, that means higher costs. And if you don't have enough labor to do this work, uh, it's, it's going to be difficult to meet these goals and do the clean energy transition that the Biden administration wants to do. Yeah, not to mention the fact that kids just aren't going into the trades like they used to. Yeah, it's a big industry problem, and we've been working for uh, for decades to try to explain that the construction industry is a viable career path. You've got guidance counselors who are pushing kids into college instead of into the right. trade. You can earn what you can learn. And it's the best kept secret out there, and we don't want it to be a secret. We want we want to explain that you can literally learn uh, a trade that's going to be paying family sustaining wages. And do that, um, you know, at no cost. Uh, the employer or the programs will will pay for you uh, to do it. Um, and it's a, it's a great way to not have student debt and learn a trade and a skill that you can go anywhere in America or really anywhere uh, in the world and, and and be valuable. And so, for some reason, uh, the there's this mindset that the construction industry isn't um, isn't for. Uh, for smart people or, or, or the well-driven people. And, and there's this push uh, to get people into college when I think the trades are a really incredible pathway uh, to, um, to economic security, but also getting people into an industry that has a really low barrier of entry to entrepreneurship. I talked to so yeah. many of our contractors that start off as a, you know, as, as a, a, in a trade, let's say it's an electrician. And then after a couple of years, they start, you know, they start climbing the ladder and then pretty soon they want to open up their own company. And then they're now employing 10 people and now they're employing 500 people and they grow and grow and grow. And, and that's a, that's the American dream, right? You, get, you can be your own boss and you can grow and you can improve your own community. And so I think that, that, that is an, something that just needs to be talked about more is what an attractive industry um, construction can be and how important it is. And in every, 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 Every aspect of our economy relies on construction, whether it's manufacturing, um, transportation, um, technology, all these things need construction to be successful. Uh, we're the bones of a lot of these industries. And so uh, you know, we, we, we need to get more and more people into the trades, which is why we're for an all of the above solution to workforce development. Don't put all of your eggs in the registered apprenticeship um, program basket. We've got partnerships with community colleges, community workforce development efforts, um, and of course, employers have their own private workforce development programs as well that are specific for their company and their their tasks and their trades. So um, we, we we just try to encourage everyone to get into the industry and, and and take it, give it a second look. It's it's a it's a great place to be. Yeah, I think there's starting to be a shift away from pushing all the kids out of high school straight into college, but it's a it's a slow shift. I'm starting to see a little bit more, and some of that is due to the student debt crisis, and other parts of that are just you know. We've got too many um, gender studies graduates and not enough carpenters. So. Yeah, it, I, I am encouraged. There. I mean, I think a lot of states, a lot of local governments, and even the federal government has been pushing workforce development into the trades and tech and STEM, uh, which has been really helpful. And you know, I, I talk to a, a lot of small um, small companies that are they're you know they're dying for work, and there's jobs that are out there uh, for for folks who have the skills and the desire to be there. And I talk to a lot of 
young uh, either apprentices or, or just first or second year journeymen who just right right done with their apprenticeship programs and they're making like more than a hundred thousand uh, dollars in a lot of these trades and they're in their early twenties and they they're set for life if they, if they if they if they play their cards right I mean it's great right. to, great to see that story happening everywhere yeah so I know you're pressed for time. Um, and I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the clock. Let me ask you a couple questions. So we've got the midterms. We started out talking about the pro act and, and, you know, the midterms and where things stand. What's ABC doing with regards to the midterms? Well, we're, you know, we're the usual system. We're, we're, we're interviewing candidates, making sure that the candidates that we support will support fair and open competition and free enterprise. Um, our, our chapters are really active at the state and local level too. Some big state elections, some governorship governors being elected um, there as well. And um, you know, we're engaged. Our, our our big motto is get into politics or get out of business. We've been saying that for for a long time here at ABC. Um, and you know, our members understand it. They understand that just these little regulatory changes or or big swings in policy as a result of um, who's running. DC or who's running their capital or even their city council, that all matters. And so they're engaged. Um, so we're, we're active in that space. And um, you know, it's been interesting to see some of these primaries get sorted out as of late. And uh, we're in the home stretch. And you know, a lot of people don't realize, but with with uh, early voting and, and ballot voting, um, you know, there's a lot of voting is going to start pretty soon um, for these midterms in a lot of these states. So uh, people we're trying to go out there and educate our, our contractor members and their employees about what's at stake for this election and on the key issues that matter to the industry. Yeah. Uh, Pennsylvania is an interesting to watch the Senate, the Senate race there. I've been I'm just catching a little bit of the news and it seems to be a uh, interesting race to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think know, there's that's Oz and Fetterman or something Oz and like Fetterman. that. Yeah, Lieutenant yeah. Governor Fetterman's Democrat versus uh, celebrity Dr. Oz. And, uh, you know, it, it's it, it, uh, Mitch McConnell is, it sounds like from some of the messaging he's given is, is not as certain that this would be a slam dunk and this would be a loss for Republicans because uh, uh, Senator Toomey's retiring. So, you know, basically it's 50 50 split split right now and they're trying to um, either you know, flip the Senate or keep that, keep the losses uh, from, from mounting. Uh, there's a number of other states that have um, candidates that apparently are not as performing as well as they should. And God, uh, Georgia um, is another one. And there's some really tight races all over the country. And then Democrats only have a couple seats in the Senate that are vulnerable. looks like Nevada is one of the key ones, maybe Arizona, uh, maybe New Hampshire, you know, nothing. I think Republicans have more vulnerable seats right now than Democrats do. If you were to have the election today. Uh, so remind me about Arizona. Cinema won her election. Was it in 2020 or is it? Yeah. So she... Kelly's running again because he, uh, he, oh, he was appointed. Or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. So Kelly's running again, which of course is an important seat in the, in the proact discussion too. So. Right. Interesting. Well, Ben Brubeck, thanks for coming on. I know it's uh, Monday morning and your plate's full for the week. So as I appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, accommodating my schedule a little bit. Yeah, happy to be here. And if any of your audience is interested in, in learning more about the project labor agreement issue we talked about earlier, uh, there's a website called buildamericalocal.com that can give you all the insights and information on that. And if folks want to, you know, have uh, submit comments to the, to the FAR Council on this proposed rule by uh, by October 18th, um, they're, they're more than welcome to. And, and that website will have some additional information in the next uh, couple of weeks on how to do that and where to go. Um, so there's a huge coalition of construction industry groups and associations that are concerned about the project labor agreement issue. 
uh, as well as the Davis-Bacon and government registered apprenticeship issues we talked about earlier today. So I'll put the link up, but give that that uh, website again. Yeah, it's buildamericalocal.com. And I'll, okay. I'll send you a couple more resources where your listeners can learn more. That's great. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Yeah, great talking uh, to you as always. And uh, best of luck with, uh, with your travels. Thanks. All right, take care. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, that was Ben Brubeck with the Associated Builders and Contractors, and I always enjoy having him on. Um, although the ABC is primarily geared toward the, towards the uh, construction industry, I find that his insights as to what's happening in D.C. apply to everybody because he knows what's going on on the Hill. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you'd like to reach out, you can do so on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Or uh, give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Or you could always leave a comment under the comment or under the uh, audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.